Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. And here we are again with a virus special. There are so many issues that arise from this virus, it's difficult to know where to turn to. I think on Friday, when we had that sequence of Boris Johnson getting it, Matt Hancock getting it, the chief medical officer getting it, Chris Whitty, was in a competitive field, the most extraordinary day so far. And in a way, I think more significant than was made out. It obviously led bulletins and so on. But there's a great book by David Owen, which was written about, I don't know, five or six years ago. He, of course, being a doctor. And he wrote a book about prime ministers when they became ill. Now, they were all very different contexts. And on the whole, the ones he wrote about, it was not known publicly at the time that they were ill. But Owen explored in a really interesting way the huge significance of the illness and the way it determined to some extent the fate of these prime ministers, policy making and all the rest of it. Unsurprisingly, they're human beings and when they fall ill, they can't function as they would do normally. Now this is different in that Boris Johnson has revealed right away that he has got this virus and he says that the symptoms are mild. But even so, we know what can happen with this virus and those symptoms. It can be really serious. So, you know, he will function, but in an impaired way, even if it's mild. There's, you know, that great kind of formulaic answer uttered many times at Prime Minister's questions, where a Prime Minister stands up and says, I've had meetings with Cabinet colleagues and others. That's not Boris Johnson, by the way. This is a kind of generic Prime Minister. I've had meetings with Cabinet colleagues and others, and I will have further such meetings for the rest of the day, or something like that. Now, this is one of the few very precise, accurate things uttered during Prime Minister's questions. A Prime Ministerial day is crammed with meetings. And clearly, at the moment, that applies more than ever with this unprecedented emergency, the biggest crisis unquestionably since the Second World War. And he can't hold those meetings in a normal way. Clearly, he's planning to do them on video, and so far, apparently, they've gone smoothly, but it is a constraint. Quite a lot of us have been doing conferences and meetings on video over the last couple of weeks, and and, and they are different. So although he will be able to function, it will be at a more constrained level inevitably. There is another thing. Even before he got this virus, I was reflecting on how inexperienced Boris Johnson is as a Prime Minister. I did something about that on Radio 4's Broadcasting House because when you look back, he's been so prominent for so long in various different guises from being that chair of Have I Got News For You to being Mayor of London, Foreign Secretary. There is a kind of, well, no one has questioned the inexperience of Boris Johnson at this level. But he only got the job as Prime Minister in July. It's certainly been the most action-packed opening few months of any Prime Minister since Winston Churchill got the job in 1940. I'm writing a chapter for the paperback of my book on modern Prime Ministers about Boris Johnson. And it's easy to forget, it seems like ancient history now, but his first few months as Prime Minister were epic, draining, nerve-shredding, risky. 
and in a historic context of Brexit and schisms in the Conservative Party and a general election. Now he faces this. And he really has had no experience on which he can look back on to act as a guide through this. I was thinking in comparison with, say, Gordon Brown when he faced the financial crisis of 2008, which he found hugely stressful and nerve-wracking for wholly understandable reasons. But he had been Chancellor of the Exchequer for 10 years, and there is no better preparation for the challenges he faced then, a financial crash, than being Chancellor for 10 years. Boris Johnson being Mayor of London, no preparation at all. It's like um, having been in a kind of fourth division football team and doing well and then finding yourself right at the top of the premiership. The demands of being prime minister at any time are incomparably greater than being mayor of London. And when he was foreign secretary, his only cabinet job, he was sidelined by Theresa May and didn't have much to do. And what was done was kind of run by the foreign office. Now he finds himself prime minister and he hasn't been leader of the opposition. It's quite interesting. In most cases, prime ministers who are best able to deal with the rhythms of the demands have been also a leader of the opposition. Because leader of the opposition is a tough job in itself, but it's also a sort of safe practice run for the nightmarish demands of being a prime minister. You face the same kinds of dilemmas. You have to manage a team. You have to communicate effectively with the media and the wider electorate. You have to respond quickly to fast-moving events. And it gives you the kind of preparation that you need when you're prime minister and facing various unexpected crises. So Boris Johnson didn't have that background either. And there he is in the post which he had thought about in relation to, to use that phrase, getting Brexit done, but clearly could not plan for anything like this. And a prime minister who had been in post for 10 years and who had faced many crises would find this hugely daunting. One that's been there for a few months, it must be appalling the level of the strain because a new prime minister is still getting a sense of how government works. Johnson has put into number 10 a team of advisers more used to campaigning and have been appointed largely because of their views and approach to Brexit than dealing with something like this. So what levers do you pull? And how effective are those levers in delivering ends? This government, because it is a sort of campaigning government and arose from a campaign, the Brexit campaign, is fine about making announcements. But the delivery, inevitably, it's still untested on because it's been in power for such a short time. It is, of course, the fourth term of a Conservative government of some form or other. But this is, in effect, a new administration. And so he would be tested big time. And then to be tested with this bloody virus is an additional level of stress, which we don't know how he will cope with. And already there are big questions, I think, about the government's handling of the crisis. It's kind of 
you know, the in thing is to say you mustn't criticise during the crisis or probe too greatly. And I understand that. And I'm never a fan of that aggressive interview format at the most normal of times. So, Prime Minister, what you said today was different to what you said in 1963 when you said this. I've got the quote in front of me. Here it is on the screen. Look, how have you changed your mind? Isn't that outrageous? Shouldn't you resign? All that stuff is, you know, it's, it's interview interviewers showing off. But equally, to say you cannot probe when there are clearly striking questions of national importance to be asked is is a nonsense too and there are two obvious ones or three actually what they were all up to when it was clear the virus was spreading across Europe Boris Johnson famously disappeared for 10 days in the early phase of this he was at Chevening for a week and then he didn't pop up until Prime Minister's questions the following Wednesday why is the testing at such a low level compared with, say, Germany, where the testing seems to be highly effective and on a much bigger scale. And here's quite interesting. Of course, they've been asked that at press conferences, but the format doesn't allow for challenging. You know, each journalist asks one question nowadays from their bedrooms. But the response is bewildering. They, you know, the, and the officials have said it as well. I like those officials at the press. I like Jenny, the deputy chief medical officer, and I think she has said with that calm, slightly severe look that the whole world are trying to get hold of these kits, and though, so there is a supply issue. Well, yeah, but how come Germany's got so many more? And similarly with the ventilators, that there seems to be more of an acute shortage here than say. Germany. Why? Why did the government not sign up to the procurement scheme of the European Union? It seems here even Brexit hovers over decision-making of this uh, number 10 machine. They claimed, well at first number 10 said, oh you know we're out of the European Union now, so of course we, you know, the usual swagger on Brexit. Then it emerged that because the UK is still in the transition, they were asked to take part in this procurement, which might have led to more of these ventilators being available. So then number 10 claimed it was a communication breakdown, but no one believes that. The European Commission is absolutely clear when it offered the UK to take part. It's given a date and the precise nature of the communication. So these are, I think, entirely valid questions that can be asked while acknowledging what is unquestionably the case that they're all working around the clock ministers officials i mean the people at the treasury who've been dealing with these packages that even if there are gaps in these economic rescue packages that doesn't the gaps are significant and need probing but the fact that they've been working 24 hours a day in some cases is unquestionably the case. So you can acknowledge the scale of the pressures that all these people are under, but still probe. And maybe that will happen more effectively if and when Keir Starmer becomes leader of the Labour Party, which um, everyone I speak to tell me is an absolute certainty that he will be a leader of the Labour Party. Clearly one of his qualities is capacity to scrutinise. You don't become a top lawyer without that forensic quality. And 
that is the one piece of in this very very dark context a bit of i think uh, where starmer's got problems which i'll come to in a second but where he is fortunate is that just by scrutinizing constructively but nonetheless probing where it is legitimate to do so people will notice a difference with uh, jeremy corbyn where uh, that sort of forensic scrutiny the capacity to think quickly were not his um, top qualities and so i think there will be this thing oh yeah that's that's different He's asking pertinent questions, assuming he does this, I assume he will. And he will get sort of marked up for doing that. And getting marked up early on is quite important for a leader of the opposition. Opinions in the media and more widely form very quickly and are very hard to budge. Think of William Hague in 97. He put on a baseball cap thinking that would look cool and modern when he went to the Notting Hill Carnival. He thought that would be cool and modern. But people mocked and ridiculed, even though actually I don't think he did look silly in a baseball cap. But the prism had already been formed that he was silly, and therefore he looked silly. It's ironic, really, that Haig became popular once he ceased to be leader of the Tory. I once heard a phone-in where Haig was the guest after he had been leader of the Tory party. And somebody phoned, I was like, William, you know what? I think you'd make a brilliant leader of the Tory party, and I think you should be the next leader of the Tory party. And, and when you have said, well, I've already been leader of the Tory party. But while he was, opinions formed very, very quickly and in a negative way so Keir Starmer if he gets the thumbs up for that will be on his way the reason why it's challenging is obvious that at a time of epic national crisis his election which will be bizarre in itself no conference no huge cheers just a video recording of him making his victory speech few will notice it will be tough the weekend of the result a number of deaths will be going up and it will swamp all other news, including his election. And the last leader that happened to was Ian Duncan Smith when he got elected soon after September the 11th, 2001. And that didn't uh, lead to further triumphs down the road for Duncan Smith. He wasn't a front-page news story when he got elected, and he was only a front-page news story when they got rid of him a few years later. So Keir Starmer's got this huge challenge in the context of now. It was going to be tough anyway, given that the Tories have this big majority to make waves and seem relevant as the next prime minister. That's when leaders of the opposition acquire an aura when they appear to be in a position where they could be the next prime minister. When you're facing a government with a majority of 80, that's tough in itself. But with this virus overwhelming all other issues at the point of the leadership contest ending, that is going to be a big challenge. And I think he just has to be patient. There's nothing he can do about it and shouldn't contrive to do things to get noticed because other things are happening. There are things he can do and will do right away. Appoint his own team, purge Corbyn's team and people will see that as significant it's not really you have to do that every leader comes in and chooses their own team and in the end get the general secretary they want Jeremy Corbyn got the general secretary he wanted Starmer has every right to get the sec general secretary he wants and he's obviously going to try and do it more quickly 
than usual because it's not wholly in his power to get the general secretary he wants. But I remember Tony Blair acting very ruthlessly in removing a Labour general secretary when he became leader pretty quickly and putting in another. And those kind of things he can do. But it won't make huge waves. It's just the reality of the external situation. Some have called for a coalition because of partly the questions I've raised, which I think the government is deeply culpable over. The testing, the lack of preparation, the wasted 10 days, the ventilators and all this kind of thing, and that the pressure they're going to be under to take tough decisions over the coming weeks merits a coalition with Starmer immediately sort of taking up a kind of Clem Attlee deputy prime minister role. I doubt if this Downing Street, very partisan, very Brexity, would contemplate it. But even if they did, I've sort of there was a brilliant piece by Robert Saunders in the New Statesman arguing against it. I was coming round to it because I think this crisis is so great and this number 10 are full of kind of how can I put it, shallow revolutionaries like Dominic Cummings, not ideally suited for the scale of the challenge on their own. As I said, Boris Johnson, inexperienced, not known for his fascination with detail. I thought for once there was a case for a coalition. I don't like these arguments. They usually come up when people say wholly wrongly, why don't the parties work together? Left, There's no left or right anymore. Let's, let, let, let's get them all working together. Marvellous. That was the kind of mood when the coalition was formed in 2010. Cameron and Clegg, for the good of the country, um, they were actually taking decisions which led to many calamitous consequences at that point. So normally I'm pretty sceptical, but I was coming round to it. And then this great piece in the New Statesman argued rightly that this isn't like the Second World War and everybody coming together uh, and in agreement about what needed to be done, more or less, against the then more tangible, albeit daunting and intimidating, enemy. He said the time now is for scrutiny that there needs to be an opposition to question and challenge. And without that, all that will happen is that there might be a degree of internal debate, but everybody gets sucked up into the decision-making process, a lot of which has already taken place. And so there would then be no scrutiny of any significance at all. And that kind of won me round. And I don't think that uh, this is the moment for a coalition, but it is that moment for forensic scrutiny. So over to Keir Starmer on that one. He's got the platform. It looks as if he's going to win by quite a big majority. Meanwhile, everything is kind of cancelled. Here I am again in a little room in our house doing this or public events out of the way. It's, it's a weird kind of thing. I seem to be quite busy. I, I don't go around thinking, well, what do I do today? I don't know if others are finding this, that there is a kind of, um, A, there's still work that can be done, quite a lot of it actually, um, without rushing off on some overcrowded underground or driving a car into some meeting somewhere or whatever there's still huge amounts that can be done so it's a very odd time but I suspect we're at a very early phase of this new lifestyle and it's going to present many challenges of itself that's another layer of this current emergency so thank you very much and not many laughs at the moment in these rock and roll politics 
podcasts, but these are big, big themes with all kinds of consequences still to be played out. Thank you very much for listening. These podcasts are going to be weekly at the very least during this drama. We're all, this is my wartime effort on behalf of the country. And thanks for listening. See you next time.